0: Uh, Isaiah chapter 50, beginning at verse 4. The Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of a teacher. Oh, that's weird. Actually, it says the tongue of a disciple. Uh, you can see in, it says in the margin of the NRSV, the tongue of those who are taught. The Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord Yahweh who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? All of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you reveres Yahweh and obeys the voice of his servant who walks in darkness and has no light, yet trusts in the name of Yahweh and relies upon his God? But all of you are kindlers of fire, lighters of firebrands, Walk in the flame of your fire, and among the brands that you have kindled. This is what you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Listen to me, you that pursue righteousness, that seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, but I blessed him and made him many. For Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. that makes you think <laughs> yeah, if only you could turn that way of thinking onto its head, it would be really great, yeah, yeah, yeah most of the New Testament got most got most of its best lines from the Old Testament,
1: yeah
0: I mean, you can see that that being the inspiration of Romans the end of Romans eight, um, as well as the idea of turning the other cheek, um, yeah. At the beginning, confident, where
1: God is being more I support you, saying, I know God
0: There's more confidence than you sometimes get. Trouble is okay. Wow, that would make a good email epigraph, wouldn't it? (laughs) Or a kind of thing to remind myself of. Uh, Yeah, trouble is okay. Because you have a protector.
1: I generally read that as uh, doing some stuff for other people's approval or in front of other people. And it's interesting that here, who's going to confront on any of this and um,
0: their, their perspective, their opinions. They don't matter. Yeah, their opinion. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: And you're only going to have ears to speak. <coughs> ears to speak? You're, going to, you're, only going to, you're only going to have words to speak if your ears are open. That, I think, is why that, um, the translators who amended the text in the way that I said at the beginning I kind of missed the point there. They didn't see that the point is that the Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of a listener, of a disciple, Um, in order then that I can know how to sustain the weary with a word. You've only got the word to speak if you've done the listening.
1: Yeah. It feels like
0: everything the Lord's done is even going to exceed
1: what's already done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll sing, There is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer. Jesus, God's own Son, Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, the Holy One. Thank you, O oh my Father, For giving us your Son, And leaving your Spirit Till the work on earth is done. Jesus, my Redeemer, Name above all names, Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, all for sinners slain. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son, and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. When I stand in glory, I will see his face. And there I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Father, we thank you that
0: Jesus was willing to take up that testimony of knowing what it's like to be attacked, but at the same time knowing confidence in you and being able to stand, and we thank you for for the persistence of his willingness to stand for us, and we thank you for leaving us the Spirit so that we can take up the style of life that he himself took and be courageous knowing your presence with us. We pray that as we think about the scriptures this evening, you may write some more of that into our hearts and into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, well, several people said that uh, in their postings that um, they needed uh, some help with the kind of understanding the historical context it, within which both Isaiah forty to fifty-five and fifty-six to sixty-six. A set, Um, and so I'm going to start off by talking about that, and and do it by talking about Ezra and Nehemiah, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, because they actually provide you with pretty much the background to Isaiah 40 to 66. Um, So the book of Ezra starts with, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also in a written edict, and declared, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdoms of the earth and charged me to build him a house of Jerusalem, a house of Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and to rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Um, now, there, there is presupposed Cyrus becoming Uh, the emperor of the old Babylonian empire to become a Persian empire. And that's a fulfillment of the um, declarations that appear at the end of Isaiah 44 and the beginning of Isaiah 45 that issue from the fact that Yahweh is declaring Cyrus to be his anointed. Um, The context in those chapters then is before this has quite happened. Uh, Somebody commented on, this is going to be much more impressive if this happened before Cyrus has become um, the emperor than afterwards, uh, and which was it? And the answer is certainly, no doubt at all, um, that these promises were given before. That is, the context of the uh, promises in Isaiah 40-55 is just before Ezra, as it were. Uh, you need to reorganize your Bible so that Isaiah 40-55 comes just before Ezra. Um, because that's the uh, immediately preceding um, historical reality presupposed by Isaiah 40-55. That is, it's the um, last days of the Babylonian Empire. The uh, Judeans, uh, the Judean leadership, has been in Babylon for uh, 50 years or so, Uh, and um, King Cyrus the Persian has started uh, conquering the old Babylonian Empire uh, uh, from a base east of Babylon, coming himself from uh, uh, from Iran. Um, and has worked his way around the north side of the Babylonian Empire, across into what we call Turkey, um, and is working his way towards going and taking Babylon himself, but Babylon itself. And in light of history, we know that's how it worked out. But in the context which Isaiah 40-55 to presupposes, nobody knows that's how it's going to work out. Um, uh, and what Isaiah 40-55 is, uh, does is say, yeah, I know how it's going to work out. I'll tell you what God is doing in this that God is going to make Cyrus, uh, the emperor of Babylon, uh, in order that then uh, he can commission the building of the temple in Jerusalem and make it possible for Judean people to go home. Uh, And what, as the beginning of Ezra is saying, is, yeah, that happened. Um, Isaiah 45 goes as far as to describe Cyrus as Yahweh's anointed. And somebody made a nice remark in there, posting about how this totally kind of um, screwed up their understanding of what being anointed, being the Messiah, was. Um, and, and, and said, well, what would the Jews have made of that? And the answer is, that that's what it was designed to do. It, it, there, they, they thought they knew how God was going to be at work, how God was going to send an anointed king, uh, somebody on David's throne. And along comes, uh, come these prophecies and say, yep, God is going to send an anointed king, and the anointed king's name is Cyrus. Well, you're going to get lynched if you say things like that. Not surprising that this prophet speaks in the way that he did in that passage that we just read in terms of people's attacks on him because of the scandalous nature of the kind of things that he said that Yahweh was going to do. Um, Again, somebody commented on, oh, something that um, John, one of those big preacher guys said about um, tornadoes in Minnesota or something. Piper, Piper yeah. I'd said that these were the hand of God. Well, it's all well to say that after the uh, the tornadoes have happened, the thing about a prophet is the prophet says that before it happens. That's what makes it prophecy. That's what makes it possible then for the prophet to say afterwards, you see, I said it. For Yahweh to say afterwards, you see, I said it. And for the people to say, put that in, in the book quick. Um, and that's the, so the, the background of those prophecies in Isaiah 40 to 55 is the ministry of a prophet in the context of Babylon when it's clear that there is a big political crisis brewing, but nobody knows how it's going to turn out, except that Yahweh knows how it's going to turn out, not merely because Yahweh predicts things, but because Yahweh decides things, because Yahweh is going to um, use Cyrus as his means of making it possible for Judeans to be free to return and for the temple to be built. Um, that's the uh, background, then, in Isaiah 1-6. to So some Judeans seized the opportunity to go back uh, that's, uh, and, and rebuild the temple, and you read the story of, of that in Ezra chapters 1-6. to um, But we know from other parts of the Old Testament and from subsequent history that not everybody chose to do that. Uh, after all, most of, the, most of the Judeans living in Babylon had never seen Jerusalem. Who wants to go and live in a kind of backwater of the empire like that when we could be uh, living in this cultured center, Babylon? Most people never did go back um, uh, or, and or only drifted back gradually. That's why it was possible for Ezra's great-great-granddad and Nehemiah's great-great-granddad still to be in exile, as it were, um, in order for, to, for Ezra and Nehemiah Ezra and Nehemiah, in due course, to come from uh, exile to uh, back to Jerusalem, or rather by this stage, one ought to refer to it not as exile but uh, not as exile but as dispersion uh, in the context of the 540s when Judeans were in Babylon, the background of isaiah 40 to fifty five then it 's exile. The people have got no choice but to be there once the Persian Empire has taken control and Cyrus um, has uh, Given permission to the Judeans to go back, encourage them to go back uh, to rebuild the temple. Uh, then it, it becomes dispersion because you only choose to be there; uh, you you aren't forced to be there. So the exile, I'm sorry. The yes. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. Certainly. Yeah. I'm taught, But I mean, obviously, you'd need to be about 80 yeah. in order to have, um, uh, to have seen the first temple. So the vast majority of people uh, would would never have seen the uh, would never have seen Jerusalem. Uh, we talk about them going back, but they were going for the first time. Um, I've forgotten the other thing that reminded me of, but uh, it'll it'll come back or not, we'll see. So Ezra one to six tells you the, the tells you the story of them going back and rebuilding temple. But, um, and, and covers the period from about 539 to 516. Um, but even when they, f- when they first start building the temple in about 537, when they get back, they meet with um, opposition and trouble. Uh, and as you can tell then from when from you read Haggai and Zechariah, who come from the same period, who you'll be reading for Wednesday, um, you can read there about the difficulties they had in making themselves to do the work, because you can see how they would be concerned about building their own houses, never mind about building a temple. Uh, and and so there are all sorts of um, obstacles uh, in the way of their doing what they need to do, and all sorts of ways in which the return and the rebuilding of the temple is nowhere near as wondrous as you'd have thought it was going to be when you've read Isaiah 40 to 55. Um, it's then, it's, that, the, the story then in the second half of the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah uh, continues to describe for you the tough nature of the position of people in Judah uh, over the next century. Now, um, here's uh, one of those little things that if you can get it in your head, it'll be a great blessing to you with regard to understanding the Old Testament. Draw a big line in the Bible between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. Because there ought to be at least a big wad of white space there. Because it says harmlessly in Ezra chapter 7, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, son of Sarai son of Ezariah, son of Hilkiah, blah, blah, uh, went up from Babylonia. And you think, after this, well, maybe that was next year, or five years later or something. No, not at all, it was in the next century. It's really kind of misleading. I mean, you can't blame the Bible because it's the inspired Word of God. Could, but you can't blame the NRI for not giving you any white space, because <laughs> really, there's much more of a division between Ezra six and Ezra seven than there is between the Book of Ezra and the Book of Nehemiah. Ezra the guy appears in chapter seven, uh, and he carries on being there in the Book of Nehemiah, which runs straight on uh, from the Book of Ezra. So Ezra one to six is about the return from the exile. Um, Ezra is nothing to do with the return from the exile. If this was the writings course, I'd make you say, to, say with me, Ezra is nothing to do with the return from the exile. But you can tell I'm going to do it. Say it with me. Ezra is nothing to do with the return from the exile. Because he came in the next century. Um, and, and so did Nehemiah, and they overlapped in their ministry. Um, and so you, you can get from the second half of the book of Ezra and from the book of Nehemiah the kind of pressures that people were under. Um, Internal pressures, community troubles, um, the opposition of, uh, peoples, of the peoples around, uh, and the um, pressure that's put on them by their being merely a colony, uh, a, a province of the Persian Empire, having to pay the taxes to the imperial center, uh, which all of them uh, underline the uh, impression that you can get from Ezra 1 to 6 and also from Haggai and Zechariah of life being, t- life being tough uh, in the period after the exile. And that's the background to Isaiah 56-66, to 66, the toughness of life after the exile. One of you said, this is weird. Why does it keep moving between telling them there's going to be a great act of restoration, everything's going to be great, and telling them that they need to be committed to God? Well, actually, there's every reason why those two, th- because those two are the two, um, the two things that the community... Uh, in this period needs to be grasped by. That is, the, the, the situation is tough for all sorts of reasons, uh, and there are two um, aspects uh, to what God needs to say to them that, that run through Isaiah 56-66, to which are expressed in the old chorus which some of you know. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus' But to trust and obey. You don't look as if you sing that in Sunday school nowadays, <laughs> but we did when I was little. Um, and, th- and that's that is uh, a summary uh, of the message of Isaiah fifty six to sixty six. It's trust and obey. On the one hand, uh, it's to keep trusting that those terrific promises that Isaiah forty to fifty five have given are going to be fulfilled. So one thing that Isaiah fifty six to sixty six does is uh, paint those promises again in even more IMAX glorious technicolor terms, particularly in 60 to 62, the picture of the restoring of Zion. But also stress the obedience side, because the prophet can look around at the community and see all sorts of ways in which they need to sort out their lives, as somebody like Nehemiah can look at the community and see, and, and Ezra, see all sorts of ways in which they need to sort out their lives. Um, And so, those two prongs to God's message are the two challenges that Isaiah 56-6 brings to that um, community after the exile. Nobody's very sure, or rather the experts all disagree, they're they're all sure, you know, because Old Testament scholars are usually pretty sure, um, but they disagree about whether to locate the stuff in Isaiah 56, that's in Isaiah 56 to 6 nearer the beginning of that period after the exile or, or, or in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. That is, you can read it against the background of the kind of pressures that you read about in Ezra 1 to 6, the period immediately after the first lot of people returned from the exile and rebuilt the temple. Uh, and or you can read it against the background of the troubles, uh, the pressures, uh, the sins, the doubts, of the period of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, maybe it's a mixture. Maybe it developed over, over a time. And indeed, some people think it carried on developing after that. But I don't think it makes a great deal of difference. Because if you can grasp the, nat- the, the, the nature of the kind of pressures that the community is living in um, between 539 um, and uh, 445, the time when Nehemiah arrives, so over that period of a century, in the latter part of the 6th century, in the first half of the 5th century, if you can get a, um, a grasp of the nature of the pressures that people are living in through that period, then the promises and the challenges that you read about in Isaiah 50-66 uh, belong somehow in that context, address various aspects of that context. Um, so Isaiah 40-55, to 55, uh, read against the background of the end of the period of the exile itself. We know it's the end of the period of the exile. They didn't. Isaiah 56 to 66 read against the background of the pressures of the period after the exile. Um, okay, so far. Anybody want to ask anything about that, about the historical background sort of questions?
1: Mm-hmm. So, to be clear, um, 40 to 55 is set for Cyrus actually comes to power?
0: Uh, before he's in, in power, in as far as the Judeans are concerned, he's the emperor. He's the he's the king of Persia, uh, but but he hasn't he hasn't taken control of the Babylonian Empire, and therefore he hasn't taken control of the Judeans. Okay, whereas the 56 to 66 comes from the later period when the Persians it's beyond Cyrus's day now, when the Persians are in control uh, of Judea and. Uh, and whereas, as, as always happens, it's like Obama or anybody, you think he's the messiah when it's about to happen. When it's happened, you realize he's not the messiah. Um, and uh, the, so Cyrus, the Persians, they thought were going to solve all their problems, uh, but then they discover that it um, doesn't make a great difference which empire you will buy. It's bad news, whoever it is. Okay, page 124. I don't have any. I'm sure there are some. But it's worth you realizing that the, um, that the numbers that we're uh, talking in terms of are much lower than people usually think um, in terms of. That is that the, when, you, when you read at the end of the books of Kings and in Jeremiah about the numbers of people who were um, transported, who were exiled, the numbers are numbers like 4,000 and 10,000. They're not numbers like 100,000, which must have been the sort of number of people who were living uh, in... Well, maybe that's an exaggeration, but, but a, a high four-figure, a high five-figure number, um, uh, rather than uh, a, a low four-figure number. Um, yeah. um, so uh, the people who were exiled were the leadership, the king, the court, the princes, the politicians, the business people the priests, the prophets. You take all the leadership reckoning that if you cut the head off the community like that, you won't get any trouble. Um, and uh, so that then, well, on the one hand, maybe the, the um, population in Babylon has, uh, has grown in the intervening period. But on the other hand, many of them didn't go back. So the number you're thinking about going back is going to be in the thousands rather than in the tens of thousands. Uh, I would think only a minority went back. Yeah, I would say. Because there is a flourishing... Uh, from now on, the dispersion, Babylon and Persia, is, is, in a, is in its way just as much a center of um, the Israelite people as uh, Jerusalem is, as, as, Israel, as the land of Israel is. Uh, so the setting of the stories in Daniel or the story of Ezra, for instance, is in the dispersion. The Babylonian... Um, Jewish community is at least as important in terms of the, of the development of Judaism as the community back in Palestine. Um, so I don't know if you, if you, uh, I, I, don't know that anybody knows um, in absolute terms. But if you think in terms of a sort of half and half, then you might, you, you may be near. But that's just, I'm just plucking that. Out, yeah. Um, okay, this is, that reminds me of a byway arising from last. Uh, week when I tell it i said i 'd try and sort out about Samaria and Edom and Edom and whatnot um, and I got clearer through trying to think about it that the situation well and through reading one or two things about it that the situation of the fall of the northern kingdom of Samaria in seven two two and of the exile that the Assyrians did to them um, would, would was would have been m- quite similar to what happened to the Judeans in 587. That is, uh, the Books of Kings talks about uh, the people of Samaria being transported uh, and and being replaced by other people. But the Assyrians wouldn't have taken everybody. They, again, would have taken the leadership. And so in in the the old northern kingdom from then on, you, you would have had some people who were genuine Israelites who stayed there and some people who were brought in from outside uh, who were total foreigners. And then within the community of Israelites who stayed there, there would be some people who were guilty of the kind of apostasy and disobedience and disobedience to the Torah and whatnot that the books of Kings talks about. But also some other people um, who were faithful worshippers of Yahweh, of the kind that somebody like Elijah and Elisha would have been. So you've got, well then, and then further, at least from later claims, we know that some of the people who were brought in by the Assyrians uh, were people who then took on the worship of Yahweh. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about them in those terms. So in the old northern kingdom, you've got at least four sorts of people, right? You've got uh, people who'd always lived there and who were faithful to Yahweh, people who'd always lived there and weren't very faithful to Yahweh, People who came in from outside and didn't know who this Yahweh character was, and people who came from outside and became worshippers of this Yahweh. Now, when you, again, when you read in Ezra and Nehemiah about the trouble between the Jerusalem people and the guys up in Samaria, um, the, the, the people in Jerusalem uh, are inclined to read the guys in the north in a negative way. And you kind of can't blame them. They weren't taking any risks. But it looks as if the reason why they developed, as I mentioned last week, a community in the north that was at least as faithful to Yahweh as the community in the south. Is because there'd always been people like there, people like that there as well. Uh, and although there were degre- there were movements between faithfulness and unfaithfulness in the in the old northern kingdom in Samaria, um, as there were in Judea I- in the south, uh, over the years, the part of the ba- the Part of the background to the fact that, so let's start again. In The, the question that I was talking, raising last week and didn't know the answer to was a puzzle about why, on the one hand, Samaritans have a bad reputation for unfaithfulness, but on the other hand, we, we have evidence for Samaritans being really rather sound. For instance, they were, um, as I said, like the um, Sadducees in only accepting the Pentateuch, they wanted to be totally loyal to the, to, to the law of Moses. Um, and although um, the, the basis for conclusions about these questions is still sketchy, uh, it, it, and, and will probably always remain that, um, it looks as if the, back, the, the reason why there are two ways of looking at Samaritans, Samarians, um, you can look at them as apostate and unsound and disloyal to Yahweh. Or you can look at them as, uh, and they can look at themselves as, more faithful to Yahweh than your average Jew is because there there would be both sorts of people in the community, and you can imagine how uh, some of them would be in the Ascendant at some time. Sometimes the the community as a whole would be more faithful in in Samaria, and sometimes the community would be, uh, on the whole, less faithful. And what was true about Samaria is also true about Judea itself, as the um, Second Temple period unfolds. Sometimes it was more faithful to Yahweh, pretty much it was uh, faithful to Yahweh, But in in times of pressure, it could easily be driven uh, into uh, unfaithfulness. Um, Right. Now, where am I? Well, if you don't know, John, what chance have they got? Um, I think I need to talk you through the servant a bit, because lots of people have got questions about that. And... uh, And what I'll do is, if you look at page 120, um, page 120 and 121, which I um, uh, suggested you read, I'm kind of going to, kind of going to talk my way… On, on, on page 121, uh, I've given you the possibilities about how to identify the servant in 40 to 55. Uh, and several of you said, do we have to have the same answer all the time? Uh, and you are sharp people. If I had written down your names, I would expose you. But I didn't, so I won't expose you. Um, but, uh, but it seems to me that the... And, and I'm not peculiar in this. When I say it seems to me, I don't mean I'm the only person who thinks this. Uh, that actually the chapters make more sense if you don't assume that the idea of servant always has to apply to the same person. So um, let me talk you down that outline at the bottom of page 120 uh, in that connection, where I've given you five a uh, kind of division of the, of the um, 16 chapters into, into five. The servant first appears um, in chapter 41 and then in chapter 42. Uh, And when the the servant first appears, it's quite explicit that the servant um, is Israel. Uh, And this is a piece of good news. It may not sound very good news to be told that you're somebody's servant. On the other hand, if God is your servant, that's quite good news. Um, And if you've got a decent master, then to be their servant is always good news because um, a master has to be committed to the the master's servant. Uh, And that's the point about talking about Israel as the servant. In Isaiah chapter 41, um, where um, God says to Israel in 41 8 to 10, But you, Israel, you are my servant. You are Jacob whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You are the one I took from the ends of the earth and called from its father's corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. It's good news to be God's chosen servant. Um, and so, uh, further on in the chapter, uh, do not do not be afraid, God says several times here. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you insect Israel. And again, in response to one or two postings, that's not an insult. Uh, it's an, uh, it, it's, and in response to, to somebody else's posting, one or two people commented on the links between these chapters and the Psalms. Did, is there any evidence that, the, that, Isaac, that this prophet would have known the Psalms? Well, lots of evidence within these chapters. The, the prophet keeps quoting the Psalms. Uh, the praise of these chapters reflects the Psalms. Um, but the, the kind of phrases you get here reflect the Psalms because you might remember at Psalm 22, in Psalm 22, the psalmist says to God, I am a worm and not a human being. Um, that's, that's the kind of thing that you, say, that you, you might say to God uh, in, in a prayer. And so when God says back to you, do not fear, you worm Jacob, you insect Israel, God's not trying to put ideas into Israel's heads uh, about them being worms and insects, and much more miserable than they think they are. On the contrary, they already think that they are just worms and insects. Uh, and what God is saying is, don't, don't, don't look at yourself that way. Don't be afraid, worm Jacob, insect Israel. Um, I'll help you," says Yahweh, your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now I will make of you a threshing sledge, a much more impressive earth mover than a worm. Right. Sharp, new, and having teeth, you shall thresh the mountains and crush them and make the hills like chaff. You're my servant, so I'm committed to you. 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, um, it became customary, since the work of the wonderfully named Bernard Doom, except it's built like that, but it's a shame, really. Uh, Doom was the guy who um, actually separated off, uh, persuaded people that 40 to 55 and 56 to 66 needed to be viewed separately. But he was also the guy who isolated four of the passages about the servant in 40 to 55 and called them the servant songs, passage in 42, 49, 15, 53. Uh, and for a hundred years after Doom's work at the end of the 19th century, the world of scholarship worked with the notion of servant songs uh, and reckoned that that ought to make it easier to understand Isaiah 40:55. 55. But it totally didn't work. Because when you take those four so-called servant songs out of the context, there's no way of understanding them. Uh, and at the end of the, 19th, at the 20th century, wise people, like me, um, decided that didn't work and we needed to go back behind Doom and ask again, can we read these so-called servant songs, which are no more about servant than other passages, and they're no more songs than other passages, can we read them in the context? Um, and, uh, and that seems to me that the, you, you get much clearer what these passages are about when you read them in the context. Paradoxically, the thing that threw Doom, about 42, for instance, was at, is actually the key to understanding it. Because in 42, uh, it doesn't say, it doesn't identify the servant, it describes the servant's role. And that makes a difference from, one, from the passage in 41, where it identifies the servant, but it doesn't talk about the servant's role. 41, Israel is the servant, and that's good news. 42, this is what the servant's supposed to do. Is the servant Israel or not? Well... This, uh, you've all, you already know from 41 that Israel is the servant. This is what Israel as the servant is supposed to do. So uh, you know that this is what Israel is supposed to do, but it's, it's significant, the very fact, that, that 42 doesn't actually say Israel. Because when you read through that second servant song, you can tell that it isn't the kind of thing that there's any way Israel could ever do. And they certainly couldn't do it in the context. Now, much, much further down the line... That's why Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Uh, Not because, as it were, it's about him in in the sense that that the prophet has got a a vision of the Messiah or of Jesus going around Galilee or something like that, but because it's a description of a role that needs fulfilling that Israel is supposed to fulfill, but that Israel is never going to be able to fulfill. Um, And you're more or less told that by... Um, by the fact that on the one hand, 41 has told you that Israel is the servant, but on the other hand, 40, the beginning of 42 doesn't say Israel is the servant. When uh, you can see why. I think, let me, let me just keep going, will you? Um, and the point is made explicit at the end of 42 when it says, 42.18, Listen, you that are deaf and you blind, look up and see, who is blind but my servant? Or deaf, or deaf like my messenger whom I send? Who is blind like my dedicated one or blind like the servant of the Lord? The alleged servant can't see what God is doing, can't see what God expects, can't see what God is going to do. Uh, And that kind of makes explicit that the entity that's supposed to be the servant can't actually fulfill the role of the servant. So obviously, what would you do if you were the master? You'd cast off this servant, wouldn't you, and go and get another one? But the trouble with being God is you can't do that at least you can't do it if you've made the kind of commitment that God has made to Israel. That's, that's, that's your chesed that isn't on the T-shirt, uh, but, but as it were, could have been. I'll get one next year that says chesed. The trouble with being God is you can't go back on your commitments and your promises. And God has made such commitments and promises to Israel that God can't abandon them. And that links again with questions that people raised in their postings about, is Israel still God's people? Well, I so say the trouble with God, God can't abandon Israel because made it just. And the really good news about that is, it also means that God can't abandon you. If God could abandon Israel, God could abandon you. So it's not in your interests, as Karl, as Karl Barth pointed out in his exposition of Romans nine to eleven, for you to believe that God could abandon Israel, because you're in a real mess if that's the case. Uh, but apart from what's in your interests. Um, the, the New Testament doesn't never uses for instance the phrase New Israel to describe the church or anything else that's, that's, that's post New Testament, that's post the, the great uh, separating of the ways between Jews and Christians and the polarizing of relations between them and the church coming to think that it's taken Israel's place. In the New Testament um, there's no encouragement to think that the church has taken Israel's place. How could that be? How could God be unfaithful to his people in that way? But that, those issues already arise in, uh, between Isaiah 42 to 48 in which you'd have thought that God would now abandon this servant but instead God says things like 44, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says Yahweh, who made you, who formed you in the womb, and will help you. Do not fear, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. I'm still with you, you're still my servant. Now, you can see that God's got a problem, though, because God uh, God is the master. Israel is the servant. Israel can't do the job. God's got to be committed to this servant, but God wants to get the job done. So what's God going to do? The answer comes to the horror of the prophet in chapter 49. So, um, well, it's in, in that intervening part. In, in, in 44 to 48 is when you also get Cyrus and the fall of Babylon. So, um, one thing that, that, that God needs to get done is the restoring of the uh, Judeans to their own land, and Cyrus can look after that. Uh, and so, the, what would have been the great Davidic role is one that Cyrus can fulfill of being the great military victor. But that doesn't sort things out, between that, that, that doesn't bring about the kind of renewal of God's own people that's needed. Um, when you get to 49, uh, the prophet gives the first of two testimonies. The, the, the one that I read at the beginning of 50 is the second of these two testimonies. Listen to me, coastlands. Pay attention to you peoples from far away. Yahweh called me before I was born. While I was, while I was in my mother's name, he named me. Who said that before? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So you know it's a prophet kind of person who's speaking. Who said it later, by the way? Paul. Paul talks in those terms when he talks about his call in Galatians. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. I'm the prophet, and I've got to be God's servant. You are the Israel in whom I will be glorified. I can't be glorified in this Israel. But I'm going to be glorified in you, and that's the way I'm going to do something for them, do something with them. But I said, I have labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my cause is with Yahweh, my reward with my God. Now, Yahweh says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So that's the job that that, that the prophet has got, you see, to, to be the servant to the servant. To, to make it possible for, the, for, the, for Israel as God's servant, really to be God's servant, to come back to God. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Oh, thank you very much. It gets worse and worse. I've not only got to be a servant to Israel, I've got to be a means of bringing light to the nations. It's okay, it's okay, Prophet, because the way in which that's going to work out, at least I think this is the implication, is that it's precisely by the kind of ministry that the Prophet exercises to his own people that, not, that light will come to the nations, partly because of the fulfillment of, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of that ministry and the way in which Israel does get uh, restored so that when Israel is restored, the nations, go, as, as God had intended back in the time of Abraham, the nations go, Oh, wow! Wow! Um, and that's the way that light comes to the nations; that God's salvation reaches to the ends of the earth. On an interim basis, then, um, this this prophet um, is called to be God's servant uh, in order that Israel can become the servant again. And that passage that I read uh, in chapter 50 is making the same assumption, um, uh, but but making even more clear that uh, the the kind of pressures that being God's servant brings upon uh, the prophet. When you get to chapter 53, um, you go back from... No longer is the prophet speaking in the first person. The prophet is speaking in 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 the third person about the servant. When the prophet says, See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of mortals. So shall he startle many nations, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they shall see. That which they had not heard, they shall contemplate. And chapter 53 um, then describes the way in which, in this vision, um, the servant of God has been humiliated, but he's going to be restored. It doesn't identify God's servant. So um, all bets are open It's not like um, in 41, Israel was God's servant. In 49 and 50, uh, I, the prophet, am God's servant. In 42, it's it's open, in a way, who's to be God's servant, though we know Israel is supposed to be. When you get to 53, well, we know Israel is supposed to be God's servant. We know the prophet has been called to be God's servant. Who is the passage talking about? It doesn't tell you, like 42, and that's something you have to respect. Um, one way of seeing it is to see it as a kind of job description. This is the kind of role um, that needs to be fulfilled if God's people are to be brought back to God. Or to see it as a kind of challenge. This is the kind of um, uh, role that you need to fulfill. Or to see it as a kind of promise. This is a kind of role that God, this is something God is going to do. Uh, if, you'd got the, if we had the prophet here and we could say, well, excuse me, and you grabbed him by the lapels, and you say, okay, who, what do we want to know? Who is this about? Is this about Israel? Is this about the Messiah? Who's it about? <laughs> and I think he might say, to, there, are one, there are two things he might say. He might say, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> because, because the point about it, because, because if you were supposed to know, it would tell you. Or perhaps he'd say, I don't know. I just told you what God told me. I I don't have any privileged um, information. I'm just like an Old Testament professor. All I've got is the text. Uh, And so uh, although my own um, working hypothesis is that this is actually a description of the role that the prophet was to fulfill, and I'll talk about that a bit later on in preaching terms, uh that that's an interpretation uh, on my part, and uh it might not be right, and I don't want to kind of press it. It's not the most important thing about the passage. the most important thing about the passage is not who the servant is, but what the servant's role what the servant's role is um, and so it's entirely possible for Jesus to come along and fulfill this role. that doesn't mean it was about him. Because when you write a job description, it's not about somebody. Well, sometimes it's because you fixed it. Uh, But uh, I'm working on the assumption that this is an honest um, kind of company. Uh, And the job description is a genuine description of the job that that needs fulfilling. And then if you're lucky on the day, somebody comes along and says, oh, yes, he's the guy who fulfills the description. But it wasn't, as it were, about that person, that, that, that man or that woman. And that's the kind of relationship that Jesus has with this uh, passage, I suggest. Several of you want to know whether it was okay to interpret it about Jesus, to say it was about Jesus, and that's the sense in which it is. The sense in which it's a bad idea to say it's about Jesus is that that lets, lets you off the hook too much. Because the way the New Testament uses this passage is not just to say, this is about Jesus, isn't it great Jesus did that, therefore we needn't bother. Jesus, uh, the New Testament takes this passage to inform the way it describes what the church um, is designed to be. Um, So, in Philippians 2, when Paul describes what you're supposed to be, what you are as the church, then this passage lies behind it. Uh, And when 1 Peter 3 um, talks about being the church, it explicitly quotes this passage. Uh, No, it doesn't explicitly. Um, but, it, but it uses the terms of this passage because it, it's then not working with the assumption that it's really hard for us to get out of, that there is this kind of one-to-one, ratio, one-to-one link between here's a prophecy and here's the fulfillment. It's, that's, that's not how it works, particularly if it's a job description. Here's a job description. It's a job description that Jesus supremely fulfilled. But we don't have, then have to say that, for instance, the Jewish people can't fulfil it. We don't have to say that the Church can't fulfil it. We'd better not, because that lets us off the hook. That's not that's not the kind of thing that this that this vision is. Um, okay. That isn't what I said, because I, I don't think it's helpful to think of it as a prophecy. I don't think it's helpful to think about prophecy and fulfillment. If it's a job description, or even if it's a promise, it, 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 it doesn't help it to think about it in that framework. Do You see? I don't think I talked in those terms. But anyway, but go on. Yeah, sure. That, that, yeah, exactly. That's yeah, sure. That's yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The way you just the way you the way you just said it was fine. Well, you just did it, but I can't remember what you said. <laughs> it's it's a, 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 a the 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 job is not the the vision of the way in which God gets things achieved. Is not one that is that needs that that is necessarily fulfilled only once. Um, yeah. Already, but not yet. Oh, let's leave out the wretched already and not yet. I'm not going to say that. I'm never going to say that again in the next week. <laughs> no, it's not already. It's nothing. No, it's not the already and not yet. That's that's a different kind of. Even, even if that wasn't the, wasn't a cliche, it's not tonight's cliche. So be, so Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, let me stop there and let you talk to each other for, uh, for a few minutes about how you see all that, whether you think that makes sense, uh, what your own uh, convictions were about the servant, and so on. Talk to each other for three or four minutes. What I want to do now is to tell you how I preach on Isaiah 53 in light of all that. Um, And at the end of that, uh, we can use the rest of the time to the break, if there will be a little bit, I think. Because being an Episcopalian, I only preach short sermons. Um, So this is a sermon I preached in our church um, a year or two ago. When the uh, set Old Testament passage was a chunk from Isaiah 53. That passage that we read from Isaiah is quite difficult to get your mind around. But when the first Christians were trying to get their own minds around who Jesus was, what he'd been doing, it was one of the passages from the Old Testament that most helped them. It wasn't originally written about Jesus. It was written, it was written centuries before his day, about someone whose suffering had already happened. I'm assuming here that, in other words, that it's about the prophet. But Jesus found it helped him understand what he was about. And his followers read it as well. The basic idea was this. There was this guy who was involved in being a pastor to people. The people were in a mess in various ways. They'd been forced to go and live in a foreign country. They were a minority people in a foreign land. And they'd lost faith in their God you can hardly blame them. They'd lost faith and they'd lost hope. They were living in a time when the superpower itself, Babylon, was actually about to get kicked in the butt. But they didn't know that, but they did know that there was a crisis brewing. They didn't know it was going to mean that they would be free to go home. But this pastor knew because he wasn't just a pastor, he was a prophet. Actually, the people didn't want to know. Sometimes, if you're really down, the last thing you want is someone trying to cheer you up, right? It's a kind of insult. You could get used to things being grim and you could accept them as they are, maybe, if only somebody didn't remind you that they could be better when you don't believe that there's any way they could be better. You could kick that person in the teeth. So, when this pastor tells people that God is going to make it possible for them to go home, They do kick him in the teeth. And they aren't the only ones. He was going about saying that the superpower was about to be defeated and that it deserved it and that this was God's doing. So the authorities kick him in the teeth as well. Actually, they dug his grave, the passage says. So he knew that God was going to take his people back home, but he didn't know if he would be going with them. And the things that happened to him, the way he was treated by his own people and by the authorities, made it even more difficult for people to take him seriously. He was a kind of outcast. His own people didn't like what he said, and the authorities didn't like it either. So the authorities kicked him from one side, and his own people kicked him from the other. But there was something that they couldn't get away from something they couldn't make sense of. It was the way he coped with this. He just did cope with it. Basically, he stuck to the task that God had given him. Even when people ignored him and attacked him, he kept on preaching the same message. He kept on telling his people of God's love for them and God's intention to take them back to their land and not to worry about the political crisis that was looming because it was going to turn out to be good news for them people ridiculed him and shamed him and spat on him but he just carried on. He never complained and he never answered back. And it looks as if that's what got them. How could he do that? How could he put up with the way he was treated? Why did not he just give up and go home? The answer was that he was putting up with all this, with the abuse and the shame and the physical ill treatment because he cared about them and he cared about God. They were inclined to think that the very fact that everybody rejected him was a sign that he was totally wrong, that he was deluded, that he wasn't God's servant, that he was having a hard time and it was his own stupid fault and he deserved it. But the way that he put up with the suffering that came to him as a result of his ministry didn't fit with that. The total picture didn't make sense. And then they suddenly saw another way to understand what was going on. They thought he was suffering because of his own stupidity and willfulness. Then they realized this wasn't what was going on at all. He wasn't suffering because he was stupid and willful. He was suffering because they were stupid and willful. He was suffering because it really was God who had called him to this ministry that he was exercising that cost him so much that everyone rejected. He was suffering because he wanted to serve God, not because he totally misunderstood what God was about. He was suffering because he cared for them, not because he was willful and perverse. And somehow they were then able to look at the whole situation in a new way if he was actually fulfilling his ministry because God had called him, if he really was a prophet, if he was right that God was involved in the political situation and was bringing about the fall of their oppressors and was about to take the Israelites home, if God hadn't really abandoned them forever, then everything they had believed was wrong. They'd got everything upside down. God hadn't abandoned them. Or rather, God had abandoned them for a while because of the way they'd abandoned God, but God hadn't abandoned them forever. God had come back to them. There was hope after all. They needn't just settle down permanently and become good citizens of Babylon. They could imagine being God's people again. So there's a kind of paradox here. They thought they thought he was somebody who was being punished by God because of being a sinner and that they were reasonably all right, that God was okay with them. They came to realize it was the other way around. He was okay with God and God was okay with him and they were the people who were the sinners. So why was he going through what he was going through? There were two reasons they realized. He was suffering with them because he was living in this foreign land, deprived of his freedom and so on, the same as them, except that he didn't deserve it. And he was suffering for them. Suffering because he was trying to get them to see what God was doing and how they needed to turn to God. And he was paying the penalty in terms of the attitude that they took to him and the attitude the authorities took to him. So he was the one who was being punished and they were the ones who were being made whole as a result. They were like a herd of sheep who were going along one of those paths in a canyon on the way to find water and they'd gone the wrong way and turned up into the desert where there wouldn't be any water. And he was the one who was carrying the consequences of that in trying to get them back onto the right track, back to where the stream was. And the question then becomes, if you're the pastor, the prophet, what do you do with that experience? How do you cope with it? Do you run away? Do you give up? Or do you keep going? Do you get demoralized? Or does it somehow make you stronger? Do you lose faith? Or does it somehow make you more committed? Does everything start to look pointless? Or can you see ways in which there might be point to it Why does God let these things happen? It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief, the reading said. How do you cope with that? One of the things that happened to this pastor, this prophet, is that through it all, God showed him something about the way the very issues he was concerned about could be addressed. He really wanted his own people to find their way back to God. And he wanted their overlords as well to come to discover the real truth about the real God and give up those idols of theirs that were so impressive but so useless. Here's one of the most extraordinary things the reading said. It said that what he does is make himself an offering for sin. You know how we sometimes talk about making a peace offering to somebody. Suppose you've got a mess in a relationship with somebody, and maybe you did something you hardly realized would offend them, though maybe you should have realized, and as a consequence you haven't spoken to each other for years. And Maybe you don't mind about that. But then you eventually realize what a shame it was, and you want to put it right. And you do something to try to reach out to them and signify that you're sorry. You don't just say that you're sorry, words can be cheap you show it somehow. In Israel, a sin offering would be a bit like that. You know you've done something wrong in relation to God and you want to put it right so you could bring God a sacrifice. It would be a sign that you were sorry and that you meant it. So, these Israelites in exile need to bring something to God to show that they're sorry. There are two problems, though. One is that they aren't sorry. The other is, what on earth could you bring to put put right the way you've been behaving towards God over the years? There were no sacrifices that could deal with that. So this pastor prophet of theirs makes himself an offering for sin. When you sacrifice something, it dies. This prophet has more or less died. His life is a living death. And it looks likely that he will soon be really dead. And he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't need to put things right between him and God. But instead of being resentful, he turns his suffering into an offering. He says to God, You know the way you accept it if someone offers a lamb in a sacrifice. How would it be if I offered my life as a sacrifice for my people? I really care about them. I belong to them. They are my people. Suppose I come to you on their behalf and offer you my life as a kind of peace offering. Could that put things right? Could it make up for their rebelliousness and the way they worship other gods instead of you? Would that work? They deserve to suffer and die for the wrong that they've done. But he will treat his suffering and dying as if it was theirs. Could that work? And it did. At least in this vision that the prophet is relating. The people who are telling the story talk about the way his offering will be fruitful. God will accept it. This servant will be able to live a long life after all. He will have lots and lots of children. I guess it means spiritual children because these people are his spiritual children. God's own people will be fulfilled because of the court because of course this was just the kind of thing that God was looking for and this is why God had sent this prophet the people themselves will see that he was a faithful pastor prophet not the stupid and misguided one that they thought he was so that's what was going on between him and them and God and Jesus took that as a picture of what he was about. We are like those people. Without our quite intending it, we get into a mess in our relationship with God, and there's no way that we could have got out of the mess. Jesus came and tried to win people back, but they weren't interested. They couldn't see things his way. They came to hate the things that he did and the things he said, and eventually they killed him and God did nothing to stop it. But Jesus didn't get bitter and resentful. Instead, he treated his suffering and death as a kind of offering he could make to God that might make up for all the wrong that they had done, that we had done. It was a kind of peace offering he made on our behalf. Not that God is angry with us and needs to be placated, because actually Jesus comes because God sent him. He comes as God's representative. God is personally involved in him. It's God in person who suffers for us. But the problem caused by our willfulness still needs to be handled. God can't just pretend it isn't there. And Jesus being willing to make himself an offering is what deals with it. And that's why we're here this morning. We are here to remember that he did that and to be reassured by it. In life, we often can't let ourselves acknowledge that there's a problem about something before we can see that the problem has a solution. After all, just acknowledging that we have a problem is simply depressing. But now we can acknowledge the way things go wrong between us and God because there is a solution. Jesus offered his life and his death as a peace offering to sort all that out. Every Sunday, we get a clean start because Jesus did that for us. The chapter that we read from actually begins before the bit that we read. Who would have believed this? Yes. Who would have believed it? But it's the gospel. So maybe you can see what I'm trying to do there is to uh, work with uh, what I think is Actually, going on in Isaiah forty to fifty-five, uh, in terms of what the way in which God inspired that passage to speak to people in that context um, and enable them to see what's the nature of the process whereby they get right with God, uh, but and then um, show how. That, uh, that illumines what Jesus is about. That helps us see what Jesus is about so that he is doing again the thing that I'm there assuming was what the prophet himself did in that uh, original... The demands that then places on the church which is, well, you can't do everything in every sermon. Um, but th- that would have um, the implications for this is what it means to be church, this is what it means to be a Christian um, uh, are then further ones that you could build on that. What it means to be church? This is what it means to be a Christian. Um, uh, are then further ones that you could build on that? Uh, we we'll love we we'll love to break now because it's yeah it's the clock has just turned.